We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Away we go, episode 131 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Thursday, August 26th, 2021, the day after the end of the Orioles' 19-game losing streak. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, Joe Angel, they are back. In the win column, a 10-6 win over Shohei Otani and the Los Angeles Angels at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Wednesday night. You know, I actually considered doing my Orioles segment for this show before my national segment for this show. I almost never do that. I decided not to do that because the Nats game on Wednesday night did feature a battle of two of the top pitching prospects in the sport. But I will later in the show properly commemorate the end of the Orioles' 19-game slide. A slide that was embarrassing, but really not that meaningful. The Orioles are a rebuilding and tanking team. MLB Pipeline on Tuesday ranked the O's as having the number one farm system in baseball. That's what truly matters if you're an Orioles fan right now. You know, Ron Rivera has a saying, perhaps you've heard it, don't make what's interesting important. He used that last season. I would apply that to the Orioles. The 19-game losing streak was interesting, but not important. The farm system now being elite, that is important if you're an Orioles fan. Well, speaking of Ron Rivera, speaking of Don Ron, the culture change that he is trying to engineer for our Washington football team, we on Wednesday learned even more about the extent to which the culture has needed fixing. Very interesting stuff from Landon Collins on Wednesday at his post-practice press conference regarding the culture. We'll get into that coming up shortly. Jack Del Rio spoke on Wednesday at a post-practice press conference and may have confirmed that one of the most surprising performers of the summer for the Washington football team is making its season-opening 53-man roster. We'll get into that and more from Jack. And next segment, I have for you the latest on Curtis Samuel and William Jackson III. Neither guy fully practicing again on Wednesday. We continue to play this game of, should we be worried? Shouldn't we be worried? 
Also, I will talk Nationals. Josiah Gray on Wednesday night. Very good again for the Nats. If only, though, the game could have ended after six and a half innings. Nats ended up losing at the Miami Marlins in 10 innings. 4-3. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Kim in Pennsylvania. Writes Kim, Al, I'm a diehard fan up here in Amish country. Love the outtakes, <laughs> the juice, position flex, etc. Gibbs laugh, just too good. Well, thank you, Kim. I appreciate that. Continues, Kim. I especially like your updates on the Nats and Does, even the Wizards. I was crushed when the Nats let go of the heart of the team. But after listening to your podcast, it is a lot more understandable. Well, thank you, Kim. Glad I've won you over to my side when it comes to the national sell-off. Continues, Kim. Regarding the WFT, I was saddened to see Ruben Foster go. I know that was a while ago now. Always wonder what could have been. Well, thank you for the email, Kim. And wow, Amish country. The Al Galdi podcast has representation in Amish country. Who knew? Uh, so yeah, Ruben Foster, that's kind of random, but all right. Uh, Ruben Foster, he's not in the NFL right now. And his career, sadly, may well be over. I mean, what happened to him a little more than two years ago now was brutal. I mean, you cannot overstate that. May 2019, he suffered a torn left ACL, LCL, and MCL, and nerve damage during Washington's first OTA practice of the 2019 offseason. Just awful. I mean, if there was a CL to be torn in his left knee, Ruben Foster tore it on that day. ACL, LCL, MCL, and nerve damage as the cherry on top of the Sunday. Ruben spent the entire 2019 season on Washington's reserve injured list. Ruben spent the entire 2020 season on Washington's reserve injured list. You know, Washington claimed Reuben Foster off waivers from the San Francisco 49ers in November 2018. He was technically on Washington through last season, and yet he never played on a single snap for Washington. Pretty remarkable. Email from Tony Snyder. You know, I have to say, Tony, when I first saw your email and it said, you know, Tony Snyder as the sender. I thought initially that the email was from Tanya Snyder. I said, uh-oh, Mrs. Danny must not be happy with me. But no, this email is from Tony Snyder. I'm assuming no relation to the Danny. Uh, and Tony comes to us from Minnesota, as the Al Galdi podcast has representation in Minnesota. Uh, writes Tony Snyder regarding the permanent name for the team currently known as the Washington football team. Love the podcast. And the intro music has grown on me. I love that, Tony. Thank you. Continues, Tony. In regards to hogs being utilized as the name, parentheses, Warhogs is my personal favorite. It doesn't just have to be about the reference to the O-line. Sure, that's what you remember most, but so much has already been established with it. From paraphernalia existing with hogs slash pigs on it, different groups formed, parentheses, hogettes, hog farmers. It has become an unofficial mascot in many ways. Yes, it's probably not the best name out there, but it wouldn't feel like an expansion team like, say, Red Wolves would. Plus, when you hear Jason Wright talk, he seems to allude to the fact that the name will make you remember the past. Well, thank you for the email, Tony. Yeah, I mean, the reason that so much already has been established with hogs with the team is the hogs of the 1980s and early 90s. Like the whole reason that hogs is a thing with this team is because of the hogs. Making the permanent name some version of hogs would be an homage to the hogs. There's no way around that. 
Uh, and that would be, you know, paying respects to the past. And that's not some crime against humanity, paying homage to the past. But as I've said, I'm not a huge fan of trying to recreate the past. You know, let the glory days be. But there is a line between paying homage to the past and, you know, trying too hard to recreate the past or, you know, clinging too much to the past. It's not always an easy line to draw, but it is a line that you can draw. But that is my only real issue with the name Hogs or some version of Hogs uh, as the permanent name. You know, just this idea of you're trying a little too hard, it can feel like, to recreate the 1980s and early 1990s. But that is a problem that I could perhaps get over. I, 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 don't, I don't hear the name Hogs or some version of Hogs and say, oh my gosh, I hate that name. And I actually do like War Hogs. You know, if we're going to do some version of Hogs, I do like War Hogs the best. Putting war in front of just about anything makes that thing sound cooler. War Hawks is cooler than Hawks. War Machine is cooler than just Machine. But would people have a problem with War Hogs? You know, would some people be offended that the new name includes war? I don't know, but I could see that being a thing, even though to me it would be ridiculous for that to be a thing. All of this comes back to a very basic principle, of course. There is no perfect name. There is no magic bullet name that everyone will be totally fine with. There will be people who will look at the new name, no matter what it is, and have a problem with that name. Well, if you don't like what you see when you look at your lawn, understand that there's an easy fix. There is a magic bullet. Uh, If you don't have the time or knowledge to give yourself the great-looking lawn that you deserve, no worries. Weed Man cares for your lawn, so you don't have to. Weed Man provides what your lawn needs to look great. Fertilization, weed control, aeration, seeding, as well as a variety of other services. You work hard. You want to enjoy your weekends. Let Weed Man take care of your lawn. Weed Man is a national network of locally owned franchises, so you will receive the personal service that you deserve. This is a key point. Weed Man answers your phone calls and emails promptly. Weed Man does what it says it's going to do. I know all of that sounds simple, and it is, but it's not nearly as common as it should be. When you call Weed Man, you're speaking to someone in an office in your area, not somewhere in like the Midwest. You're not waiting for 30 minutes to speak to someone. Weed Man actually has real answers that have meaning in your area. And if you have, say, a little area of your lawn that needs special attention, Weed Man will take care of that area. You're not dealing with some huge faceless corporation that treats you like a number. Also, Weed Man uses superior products that really improve your soil, and Weed Man only treats what needs to be treated. If you're not satisfied with your lawn or with who is treating your lawn, especially if you're currently with the uh, evil empire, make the switch to Weedman. Weedman's products are of the highest quality. Weedman does not cut corners. Now, a beautiful spring lawn does start in the fall. And so Weedman is offering something special to listeners of the Al Galdi podcast, a fall tune-up at a great price and aeration and two fall fertilization services for just $209. That's about $100 off the usual price for those services. That's a steal, and it applies to lawns of up to 6,000 square feet. So here's what you do. Call 571-340-3400. When you call, make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast so you get the special deal. Again, an aeration and two fall fertilization services for just $209. Again, about $100 off the usual price. 
for those services. That phone number again, 571-340-3400. And make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast so you get the special deal. I want you to get that deal. You can also Google Weedman and make a web request. Just make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast. Weedman, a great lawn at a great price with great personal service. We will get to the very interesting comments from Landon Collins at his post-practice press conference on Wednesday coming up in just a bit. But regarding the Washington football team's practice on Wednesday in preparation for the preseason finale, Baltimore Ravens at FedEx Field Saturday evening at 6, Curtis Samuel and William Jackson III again did not fully practice. Uh, Samuel, of course, coming off a groin injury that has led to the longest ramp-up in the history of ramp-ups. Jackson is coming off a leg injury, what Ron Rivera has called a Charlie horse. These two guys were Washington's two most expensive free agent acquisitions this past offseason. There remains a feeling with each guy that he could be practicing and playing right now if the games actually mattered, but that's just a feeling. And specifically in Samuel's case, it's a feeling based on what we have been told by Ron Rivera. If what Ron has been saying is the truth, then fine. But if Ron has been doing something that many head coaches have done over the years, lie, uh, then well, there may be reason to be worried about Curtis Samuel. A receiver whose greatest weapon is his speed, dealing with a lingering groin injury, going into a season, uh, not good. Especially when you consider that groin injury was a thing all the way back in early June, when Samuel did not practice during Washington's mandatory minicamp. Ron at his post-practice press conference on Wednesday on where we're at right now with Curtis Samuel and William Jackson III. Um, so far every morning, the day after, you know, they've increased their workload every day, and every day the reports come back good. So we're, we're, we're pretty optimistic, um, you know, that sometime next week we'll have them out there with the rest of the guys. All right, so Ron says that he is, quote, pretty optimistic, end quote, that Samuel and Jackson will fully practice, quote, sometime next week, end quote. Next week isn't the week that matters. It is the following week. So if we are still dancing this dance next week, it's still not panic time. But as time goes on, right, you do get at least a little more concerned. Uh, But Washington, remember, is going to have more than two weeks between the end of its preseason and the regular season opener. Washington's preseason will conclude this Saturday night. Washington's regular season opener is against the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field on September 12th. All that matters is that Curtis Samuel and William Jackson III are healthy enough to play for week one. And we're not likely to have a true sense on that until the week leading up to the game. All right, so when it comes to talking about the Washington football team, there is the micro and there is the macro. There is the short-term picture, and there is the bigger picture. The micro, the short-term picture, includes things like, you know, how is Curtis Samuels groin doing? And is Washington going to be a good team in the 2021 season? The macro, the bigger picture, includes overarching issues, long-term issues, issues that we view from 30,000 feet. And there isn't a more significant macro issue for the Washington football team than the culture of the Washington football team. I said the culture. You know, the culture is actually damn good. Ah, yes. Maybe the most famous phrase that Bruce Allen 
ever uttered. He said that on the day on which Washington fired Jay Gruden as head coach. October 7th, 2019. More on that day in a bit. But there is no bigger task for Rod Rivera as Washington football team head coach in this coach-centric approach than fixing the culture of the Washington football team. Because the culture essentially encompasses everything, including winning. The culture for this team was a mess for years. And as time goes on, we're finding out more and more about how bad the culture was. To that end, how about what Landon Collins said at his post-practice press conference on Wednesday? Landon Collins on Wednesday said two things that really illuminated how bad things had been with Washington. Said Collins regarding the talent on Washington's roster as compared to when he signed with the team in March 2019. Quote, they brought some tough guys in here, some great guys, guys that came out here to compete. And I love it because we didn't have nobody complaining. That's the biggest thing I was worried about. My first couple of years here, a lot of people would complain and were worried about this heat. The guys they brought in just came out here and practiced. And when you got guys like that, it's really just to come out here and play and play for the love of the game. It's amazing. End quote. Here's how this sounded. They brought some tough guys in here, uh, some great guys, uh, guys that came out here to compete. And I loved it because we didn't have nobody complaining. That's the biggest thing I was I, I was worried about my first couple of years. Here. A lot of people complain and worried about this heat. Nobody, you know, just came out here and practiced. And uh, when you got guys like that, it's really just to come out here and play and play for the love of the game. It's amazing. All right. Said Collins regarding Washington's roster turnover. Quote, it was much needed. When I first came here, it was a tough pill to swallow to my guys. I didn't know much about what was going on here. But when I walked in here, I was like, all right, we got to change this around some kind of way. What Ron is doing now, man, he's done an amazing job. I just want to be a part of it as long as I can because it's a special team for sure. End quote. Here's how that sounded. It was much needed. Um, when I came into here, it's tough. Uh, it's tough pill to swallow. Uh, to my guys, <laughs> I didn't know you know much about what was going on here. But when I walked in here, I was like, "All right, we got to turn this around some kind of way." And what Ryan is doing now, man, he's done an amazing job. I just want to be a part of it as much as, as long as I can uh, because it's a special team for sure. So no doubt he schmoozes up to Don Ron toward the end of that cut that I just played for you. But strong words from Landon Collins on Wednesday. Revealing words from Landon Collins on Wednesday. But of course, if you've been paying attention to the Washington football team, you're not surprised by what Landon Collins said on Wednesday. We have heard previously about Washington having had complainers on the team. I'll never forget something that happened late in Washington's 2018 season. Jay Gruden, after practice on December 6th, 2018, revealed that there had been some griping and complaining by some Washington players over the previous two days about practice being too long and or hard. Quote, I think our guys this time of year, you can imagine that when you have 63 guys out here practicing, 
there can be some griping and moaning going on here. We had pads on today for the first part of practice. We had to check out our new linemen, and people weren't happy about that. Yesterday practice, they weren't happy. They just played on Monday night, but there's a lot of things we have to get done from an offensive standpoint, end quote. I remember that very clearly. I remember talking about that very clearly. I cannot tell you how much I hated that. I cannot tell you how much that angered me as a lifelong fan of this team. Uh, Jay revealing that, that players were whining and complaining. I mean, those players to me came off as so weak and so soft. Washington, if you remember the circumstances at that time, again, December 2018, was in the midst of a playoff push. Now, it may not have felt that way, but that was the way. You know, Washington had lost four of the team's previous five games, but was still in the mix, was struggling. Uh, Washington was getting set to start a guy, a quarterback, in Mark Sanchez, who had not started an NFL regular season game since November 26, 2015, and who had just signed with Washington on November 19th, 2018, Washington had just signed a new number two quarterback in Josh Johnson the previous day, December 5th, 2018, as this was, of course, the season in which both Alex Smith and Colt McCoy suffered broken right legs. Washington at the time here was getting set to start third string guys at both guard spots. I don't know. Sounds to me like maybe some extra practice was needed. You know, call me crazy. And yet you had Washington players whining and complaining like a bunch of wusses, like a bunch of sissies. And think about this. What did it say about the culture that the players felt comfortable complaining? You know, the culture is actually damn good. Yes, Brucey, the culture. What did it say about Jay Gruden that the players had no reservations about complaining to him? Do you think that Patriots players late in the 2018 season were openly complaining to Bill Belichick about practices being too long and or hard? What did it say about how players felt about Jay that they had no problem voicing these complaints? Oh, by the way, what ended up happening in Washington's next game? You know what happened. The team lost. Lost badly. Lost its fourth consecutive game, fell to 6-7 and seven with a 40 40- 16, lost to the New York Giants at FedEx Field on December 9, 2018 in the infamous Mark Sanchez game. So we had this scenario late in the 2018 season. We had in 2019, and it sounded like even in 2020, what Landon Collins revealed on Wednesday, the culture of the team was a mess in so many ways, among them players whining and complaining. Washington was soft. Washington was filled with players who were entitled. The team needed new leadership. A new head of the family, a new Don in Don Ron, to slap it across the face and say, enough is enough. As the greatest Don of them all, Don Corleone said in the movie, The Godfather. You can act like a man. What's the matter with you? Yes, exactly, Don. You know, as time goes on, we are learning more and more about how screwed up Washington's culture was. And the culture being screwed up had a lot to do with front office and executive stuff, right? With the sexual harassment scandal and the ownership turmoil. But the culture being screwed up also had to do with the actual team. Inmates feeling like they could run the asylum. Think players complaining as we just talked about. 
Think guys like Trent Williams and Quentin Dunbar attempting power plays to get more money. Think what was revealed about what went on under Jay Gruden beyond these things. Uh, Jay, as I mentioned, was fired as Washington head coach on October 7th, 2019. That morning, then ESPN NFL insider Josina Anderson tweeted the following, quote, Redskins player to me on coaching change. It was time. Too much laziness and stubborn bleep going on around here. Folks not taking bleep serious. Looking at Snapchat during practice. Come on now. You know who I'm talking about. Guys, we're talking about it. We'll see how it goes. And quote, another tweet from Josina. Quote, another Skins player checks in. Gruden is a good dude, but you can tell he saw the writing on the wall. Players like him, it just got a little too laid back here lately, and sometimes that can bite you in the butt. I've seen some things here I've never seen on other teams, end quote. I've never seen on other teams. Enough was enough with all of this. Ron Rivera was hired to clean up the mess, to establish law and order, and of course, the irony is that he was hired by the man most responsible for the mess, most responsible for the lack of law and order in Dan Snyder. But Ron is here to get rid of the malcontents and the bad dudes and the lazy players and rebuild the team in the right way. And we'll see if he ultimately does that. But I believe that he's on the right track. And it's a track that, as Landon Collins further validated on Wednesday, was desperately needed. Now, also speaking by a post-practice press conference on Wednesday was Jack Del Rio. And he may well have confirmed that one of the biggest surprises for the Washington football team in training camp and the preseason is, in fact, making Washington's season opening 53-man roster. We'll get to that and much more after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We continue with the Washington football team conversation right now. The defensive coordinator for the WFT, JDR, spoke on Wednesday. Jack Del Rio. It had been a while since we had heard from Jack, but we heard from Jack on Wednesday. It was good to hear from Jack. And a few things stood out to me from Jack Del Rio's press conference. Number one, he seemed to indicate that Tory McTire is making Washington's season opening 53-man roster. Now, I'm reading into what Jack said and how he said what he said 
But you tell me. I mean, there has been this growing momentum for Tory McTire to be one of the corners on Washington's season opening 53-man roster. So this isn't necessarily like, you know, a news break that Tory McTire is appearing more and more likely to make Washington's season opening 53-man roster. But there can be a difference between what we think and what actually is. And listening to Jack speak on Wednesday, it sure sounds like the actually is is reflective of what we think. There were two answers that Jack gave that to me suggest that McTire is making the team. First of all, Jack got asked about Washington potentially playing more man coverage this season off playing a ton of zone coverage last season. Here was Jack's answer, and I apologize in advance for the poor audio quality, but the Washington football team had technical difficulties in recording these press conferences on Wednesday, so this is about the best we can do. Yeah, I don't, I don't care to talk too much about this game. You know, um, you know, a coach can say whatever he'd like on that on the topic. But, um, you know, we we put together a blend of a lot of different things. Uh, we're coming through camp right now where you have your library of work that you put in, uh, preparing for the things you know you're going to need during the season. Certainly, matching up playing man will be part of that. Um, playing zone. Fire zone, man zone, zero blitz, all, you know, the whole the whole gauntlet. I mean, it's all stuff that we work on during training camp. And um, I feel like we've had a good camp, productive camp. Uh, certainly adding guys like William Jackson and and, uh, and St. Juice uh, and, and, and Tory and some of those guys that we've added um, you know, provide the opportunity because they, they're sticky in their man coverage. All right, so first of all, Jack Del Rio there initially did the thing that he has done multiple times, and that is essentially take a little jab at Ron Rivera. We know that Ron likes to speak at his press conferences, and Ron will give us stuff at his press conferences. Jack is not that way. Jack does not like to speak at his press conferences. Jack does not like to give us stuff at his press conferences. And so now multiple times when Jack has been asked something about Washington's defensive scheme or Washington's defensive strategy, Jack has said something along the lines of, well, Ron Rivera may give you that stuff, but I'm not going to. And Jack did that again on Wednesday. Yeah, I don't, I don't care to talk too much about this game. You know, um, you know, a coach can say whatever he'd like on, that, on the topic. Yeah, there it was. The latest little jab, little nudge from Jack uh, to Ron. But then Jack, toward the end of his answer, enlisting guys who Washington has added, mentions Tory McTire. Take a listen again. I feel like we've had a good camp, productive camp. Uh, certainly adding guys like William Jackson and, and, uh, and St. Juice uh, and, and, and Tory and some of those guys that we've added. Um, provide the opportunity because they, they're sticky in their man coverage. Yeah, Jack right there mentions Tory McTire along with William Jackson III and Benjamin St. Juice as additions to Washington secondary who provide the opportunity because those additions are sticky in their man coverage. I thought that was notable that Jack included Tory McTire with the likes of William Jackson III and Benjamin St. Juice, who we know are locks to make Washington's season-opening 53-man roster. And then Jack, later in his press conference, got asked specifically about Torrey McTire, and here's what Jack said. Yeah, I would say he's a pleasant surprise. Yeah, he, he's been very good, and um, and really consistently good. And, and the question was, okay, let's, 
to see it when the pads come on and it's legit. And, um, yeah, we've, we've moved him around a little bit. He played inside, he played outside. Um, he, he's had a very productive camp. Yeah, so some high praise there from Jack Del Rio for Tory McTire. Even if Washington only keeps five corners on its season opening 53-man roster as opposed to six, it more and more seems like Tory McTire will be one of the five. And this really is a jaw dropper when you consider where we were just a few weeks ago. Uh, but McTire was one of Washington's three starting corners in its preseason win over the Cincinnati Bengals at FedEx Field last Friday night. Remember, Washington in that game did not play its top two corners in William Jackson III and Kendall Fuller. Began the game in nickel, and the three starting corners in nickel were McTire, Benjamin St. Juice, and Jimmy Moreland. This really would be something. Tory McTire making Washington's season opening 53-man roster. Nobody saw this coming. You know, at least with the Jarrett Patterson thing, you can say that a lot of people saw that coming. I said months ago, I thought that Jarrett Patterson would be a star for the Washington football team in the preseason. Not once did I mention Tory McTire. Not once did I hear anybody mention Tory McTire. So this season would be McTire's age 26 season. Washington this past January 12th signed McTire to a reserve future contract. He did not play in the NFL last season. Torrey McTire entered the NFL in May 2017 with the Miami Dolphins as an undrafted free agent out of UNLV. He played in 12 games for the Dolphins over the 2017 and 2018 regular seasons, then played in five games for the Cincinnati Bengals in the 2019 regular season. And then that's it in terms of the last time Torrey McTire played in a truly meaningful NFL game did not play in the NFL in the 2020 season, was signed by Washington this past January to one of those reserve slash future contracts, and now is on the doorstep, it seems, of making the season opening 53-man roster for a team that had one of the best defenses in the NFL last season. Torrey McTire has been making plays in training camp this year, and Jack Del Rio on Wednesday spoke in a way that suggests that McTire is looking good when it comes to making Washington's season opening 53-man roster. Another thing that stood out from Jack Del Rio's post-practice press conference on Wednesday, he got asked about players being vaccinated for COVID-19. So we on Tuesday night had multiple reports that Washington's COVID-19 vaccination rate among players had been at 90% as of that morning, ranking tied for 23rd in the NFL. So the surge has continued here for the Washington football team in terms of players becoming vaccinated for COVID-19. Now, understand 90%. That means that 90% of Washington's players had each received at least one shot of a COVID-19 vaccine. 90% does not mean that 90% of Washington's players were fully vaccinated for COVID-19. It means that 90% of Washington's players had each received at least one shot of a vaccine for COVID-19, just to be clear on that. But assuming that you want to see Washington's players get vaccinated for COVID-19, and I know I probably shouldn't assume that for everyone, but if in fact you're in that camp, this is an outstanding development. You know, it was on July 16th that we had multiple reports that Washington had a COVID-19 player vaccination rate of less than 50%. Tuesday was August 24th. So in about five and a half weeks, Washington went from less than 50% to 90% in terms of the player vaccination rate for COVID-19. And I noticed something on Tuesday 
So it was on Tuesday that Chase Young did a post-practice press conference at which he was not wearing a mask. The way things had been working was guys who were not vaccinated for COVID-19 needed to wear masks. Chase previously had been wearing a mask. We can't be positive about this, but it would seem that Chase Young may well have decided to get vaccinated for COVID-19. I think that's a big deal in terms of why there has been this surge in Washington players deciding to get vaccinated for COVID-19. Certainly, Ron Rivera being so pro-vaccine has had a lot to do with this, but a player the stature of Chase Young potentially having changed his mind in getting vaccinated for COVID-19 is a big deal too. Anyway, Jack Del Rio at his post-practice press conference on Wednesday on the surge in Washington players getting vaccinated for COVID-19. And we will include the question because the question comes from our friend, Washington football team insider, Michael Phillips of Richmond.com, known instigator when it comes to the COVID-19 vaccine issue. (laughs) Here you go. Vaccines have obviously been a, a, a big topic during camp, knowing you have a little bit different perspective than Ron on that. Have you had discussions with the players? What are those discussions like? On, on what now? Vaccines, players getting vaccinated. Oh, that's, I, I think, I think we've done a great job of getting to the point where we have very few players that are not um, unvaccinated. I know the whole staff is vaccinated, so you know, hopefully we can stop talking about those things and focus on football. All right, so there you have it. Jack Del Rio on Washington players getting vaccinated for COVID-19. And I'm with him. Hopefully we can stop talking about those things. I have largely stopped talking about those things because I'm over talking about those things. I think a lot of you are over listening to discussions about those things. It has been clear for a while, too, that Washington really is no longer in like crisis mode in terms of having so few players vaccinated for COVID-19. Remember, this is as much a competitive advantage issue as it is a health issue. With NFL players, by and large, being young and extremely healthy people, they are at a supremely minimal risk of really struggling with COVID-19. But the NFL has loaded up on rules and protocols to put a player at an extreme disadvantage if he isn't vaccinated. For COVID-19. So a team is at a major competitive disadvantage if that team has a low player vaccination rate for COVID-19. To say nothing about getting vaccinated helps to prevent virus mutation, which is the biggest concern with the virus right now. But let's not ignore Jack Del Rio being asked about this. So let's just get right into it, okay? There has been this belief that Jack Del Rio is some kind of an anti-vaxxer, you know, at least when it comes to COVID-19 because of Jack's political beliefs. And if you follow him on Twitter, he seems to be a, or seems to at least lean Republican. But I have never found this notion of Jack Del Rio being an anti-vaxxer to be fair. Like maybe he is, it's possible, but we can't be certain about these things. The adults in this country who aren't getting vaccinated for COVID-19 are not all of the same political ideology race, age group, tax bracket, educational level, like you name it. There's a lot of diversity in terms of the people who aren't getting vaccinated for COVID-19. Look at the data. Adults from all walks of life in this country are not getting vaccinated for COVID-19. And Ron Rivera said all the way back on June 9th 
that all of Washington's coaches had been vaccinated for COVID-19. So it was said a while ago that Jack Del Rio got vaccinated for COVID-19. And Jack, in that cut that I just played for you, certainly implied that he has been vaccinated for COVID-19. But you see, Jack Del Rio is very much a no-nonsense football guy. So I was very intrigued watching that exchange between Phillips and Jack on Wednesday. Because regardless of Jack's stance on COVID-19 vaccines, you just know that he has like no interest in talking about this issue at a press conference. I mean, Jack has no interest, I think, in doing the press conference to begin with. So then when you add onto that a question about COVID-19 vaccines, I think that annoys Jack Del Rio even more. You see, Jack has this perpetual look on his face like he could pounce on you at any moment, you know, like he could spear you a la Roman Reigns at any moment. Roman Reigns, the tribal chief, for those of you who watch Friday Night Smackdown on Fox, Jack Del Rio is the tribal chief of what we hope is an excellent Washington football team defense this coming season. All right, so the baseball season is long. Baseball games are brutally long. So I am not one of these people who hates the new extra inning rule of the last few seasons of starting each half inning in extra innings with a runner on second base. But if you are among those who do not like that rule, you have what happened to the Nationals on Wednesday night as an example of why the rule can be very unsatisfactory. The Nats lost at the Miami Marlins 4-3 in 10 innings as the Marlins snapped their eight-game losing streak. Kyle Finnegan in the bottom of the 10th allowed the game-winning run, an unearned run. He, with the runner on second base to begin things, issued back-to-back one-out intentional walks off a leadoff sacrifice bunt and then gave up a one-out walk-off RBI single to Jorge Alfaro. And that was it. The game was over. So the Marlins won the game on a sack bunt back-to-back one-out intentional walks, and a one-out walk-off RBI single. Not exactly thrilling. Uh, Then again, Nats Marlins in late August, with each team having a winning percentage in the 400s, isn't exactly thrilling either. Although what was thrilling was the pitching matchup on Wednesday night. Josiah Gray versus Edward Cabrera in his Major League debut. Gray came into the game as the number 54 prospect in baseball per MLB pipeline. Cabrera came into the game as the number 30 prospect in baseball per MLB pipeline. This was just the second game since 2004 in which a pitcher who was a top 100 prospect per MLB pipeline's preseason rankings made his major league debut against another pitcher who had been a top 100 prospect per MLB pipeline's preseason rankings. And both guys delivered to varying degrees. Uh, Gray, two runs in six innings, seven strikeouts. Cabrera, three runs in six into third innings, but he tossed six scoreless innings until giving up three runs in the top of the seventh. More on that in a bit. But the takeaway, if you're a Nats fan, is Gray. This was another Josiah Gray day. This was another successful Josiah Gray day. Josiah Gray was good for a fifth time in as many starts as in that. Two runs in six innings, seven strikeouts. He gave up five hits, a homer, a double, and three singles. He did issue three walks, although one of them was intentional. And he did throw two wild pitches, but he also threw 62 strikes versus 29 balls on 91 pitches. And here's the truth. Josiah Gray did not have his best stuff on Wednesday night. He was not at his optimum level on Wednesday night. His control was off actually a fairly decent amount, even though he threw all those strikes. And yet still, two runs in six innings 
seven strikeouts. I think one of the best things that you can say about a starting pitcher is that he is good, he is effective, even when he doesn't have his best stuff. That's something we used to say all the time about Max Scherzer. And I'm not saying that Josiah Gray is Max Scherzer, not yet anyway, but that was Scherzer-esque, what Gray did on Wednesday night, not having his best stuff and still finding a way to end up being really good. Now, the Marlins are a terrible hitting team. We talked about that on Wednesday's installment of the podcast off the great outing that Eric Fetty ended up having in that 5-1 Nats win at the Marlins on Tuesday night. So you got to take into account who you're facing. If Josiah Gray has the same stuff that he had on Wednesday night against a better hitting team, the ultimate results may well have been different, but they weren't. Josiah Gray was good for a fifth time in as many starts as a Nat. He allowed a run in the bottom of the second on a one-out six-pitch walk of Brian Anderson, despite him having been down to the count at 1.12, a two-out single by Jorge Alfaro, and a two-out first-pitch RBI single by Brian De La Cruz. Gray allowed a run in the bottom of the sixth on a leadoff homer by Brian Anderson. So another homer given up by Josiah Gray. That's now eight homers allowed by Josiah Gray as a Nat, although all of the homers have been solo homers. Pretty remarkable that Josiah Gray is doing that. The big nit to pick is that he's giving up these homers. Uh, Josiah Gray now over 36 major league innings has given up 12 homers. But like I said, with the Nats, all eight of the homers that he's given up have been solo homers. So if that's going to be what you do, you can live with that. Now, eventually, they're going to stop being solo home runs. You got to be careful with that. But for now, eight solo home runs, eh, it's not that big of a deal. Five starts now for Josiah Gray. He, over those five starts, has tossed 28 innings. He, over those 28 innings, has an ERA of 289, a whip of 111, and a strikeouts per nine innings of 9.32. He has been really good. He is so far living up to the hype of being the number 54 prospect in baseball per MLB pipeline. Remember, Josiah Gray and the catcher, Caper Ruiz, those are the two headline prospects in the batch of four prospects that the Nets got back from the Los Angeles Dodgers in that trading away of Max Scherzer and Trey Turner and that deal that was finalized on July 31st. Oh, by the way, Cabert Ruiz, who is playing for AAA Rochester right now, he on Wednesday night hit two home runs in a game for a second consecutive game. This is very enticing. This battery of the future, potentially, for the Nationals. Cabert Ruiz, a catcher, Josiah Gray as a top-line starter, and of course, right now, also at AAA Rochester, is Cade Cavalli. So Cabert Ruiz, in addition to smashing bombs, is going to be getting some experience working with Cade Cavalli. So that's a very good thing. So Josiah Gray on Wednesday night was very good, again, for the Nats, and this looked like a game that the Nats were going to win. Like I said, Edward Cabrera tossed six scoreless innings, but then came a three-run National seventh inning. It started with Alcides Escobar drawing a leadoff eight-pitch walk off Cabrera. Alcides had another game in which he got on base multiple times. He had that leadoff eight-pitch walk in the Nats three-run seventh. He also, in the top of the fourth, had a leadoff single despite having been down to the count at 1.12. Then came big blow number one, Josh Bell, a one-out two-run homer on a line drive to dead center off Cabrera on an 0-2 pitch to tie the game at two. You don't see that often, a line drive homer to dead center. (laughs) And yet that's exactly what Josh Bell did. That home run had like no launch angle, it seemed. Uh, But the homer went and projected 413 feet per stat cast. And the homer had an exit velocity of 109.7 miles per hour per stat cast. 21 homers now 
for Josh Bell this season, one more than Juan Soto has. And then came big blow number two, Yadiel Hernandez, a one-out opposite field solo homer to left field off Cabrera for a 3-2 Nats lead in going back-to-back with Josh Bell. Yadiel's been hitting well lately. His OPS for the season is up to 836. So the Nets go from being shut out to leading 3-2, going into the bottom of the seventh inning. And then comes Andres Machado. And, you know, Andres Machado for a good chunk of the season actually had pitched pretty well, but he has been struggling here lately. And he struggled again on Wednesday night. He allowed the game-tying run in the bottom of the seventh on a leadoff triple by Magniuri Sierra on a 1-2 pitch and a one-out RBI double by Jesus Aguilar to tie the game at three. Again, Marlins are a bad-hitting team. Machado comes into the game with the Nationals now with a 3-2 lead, and Machado like almost instantly gives it back. A leadoff triple and then a one-out RBI double. Nats bullpen the rest of the game, though, was good. Kyle McGowan, a perfect bottom of the eighth. Austin Voth, a scoreless bottom of the ninth to preserve a three-all tie despite giving up a leadoff double to Brian De La Cruz on a bad defensive play by Carter Keeboom. Uh, this, to me, was not a legitimate double. Carter Keeboom essentially whiffed on an attempted backhanded stab of a Brian De La Cruz grounder, and De La Cruz ends up being credited with a double. But Vogt does a good job of negotiating things and getting out of the inning unscathed. And then we had, like I said, what happened to Kyle Finnegan in that bottom of the 10th inning, an unearned run. He with the runner on second base to begin things. Issues back-to-back, one-out intentional walks off a leadoff sacrifice bunt, and then gives up the one-out walk-off RBI single to Jorge Alfaro. So yeah, Finnegan gave up the walk-off hit, that's true, but it's not like he pitched terribly in that inning. McGowan, Voth, and Finnegan, for the most part, uh, were fine. I mean, Finnegan, it's hard to evaluate, to be honest with you, but, you know, especially McGowan and Voth, I thought that they did good jobs on Wednesday night. Some other thoughts from this game. So, Lane Thomas was again the national starting center fielder and number one batter on Wednesday night. This is now four consecutive games for which Lane Thomas and not Victor Robles has been the Nats starting center fielder and number one batter. And I've been skeptical about this in terms of this only being because Victor Robles had been under the weather. That's what Davey Martinez in his pregame press conference on Sunday said. Victor Robles has been under the weather for a few days. Well, we saw Victor Robles come off the bench in the previous game, and then he's not out there starting again for Wednesday night. And Davey in his pregame press conference on Wednesday said that Robles was feeling better, but Davey added that he wants to continue to see Lane Thomas play. And I get that. Lane Thomas has been outstanding. Okay, we've talked about that here on the podcast, but I don't want him to play at the expense of Victor Robles either. And I don't really understand why in an attempt to truly evaluate Victor Robles and give him that good faith effort as your starting center fielder and number one batter, or just at the very least your starting center fielder game in, game out, why you can't have Lane Thomas in left field and Victor Robles in center field. Now, I get it. Yadiel Hernandez has been hitting well. I just made mention of it. 836 OPS now on the season off his solo homer on Wednesday night. But depending on how you view Yadiel, remember, Yadiel Hernandez is a guy already into his 30s. This is his age 33 season. If you don't view him as a legitimate piece moving forward, then let's evaluate both Lane Thomas and Victor Robles. This doesn't have to be an either-or proposition. Look, Davey has been down on Robles throughout this season. Davey pulled the plug on Robles being the Nationals' every-game leadoff batter very early in the year, barely gave Victor a shot at that. It was just a few weeks ago that Davey said that Victor Robles and Andrew Stevenson 
who are essentially going to start splitting the center field job with Stevenson playing primarily against righties who make up about three-fourths of starting pitching in Major League Baseball. So that essentially meant that we were going to be seeing more of Stevenson than Robles. But the problem was Stevenson has been worse offensively this season than Robles has. And Stevenson now is at AAA Rochester. But now Davey has maybe found his out with Victor Robles. You know, Davey's been seeking an exit ramp from the Victor Robles Highway. And uh, Davey maybe feels like he's found it here with this Lane Thomas surge. And again, I want to see more Lane Thomas too, but uh, I don't want to see Victor Robles buried either. There's a way to play both. And for whatever reason, we're not seeing that here right now. Uh, Lane Thomas on Wednesday night in this 4-3 10 inning loss at the Marlins did go 0 for 4, but among his outs was a loud out, a deep fly out to left center field for the third out in the top of the third as Marlins center fielder Brian De La Cruz made a good catch, a leaping backhanded catch against the outfield wall. Uh, Riley Adams was the Nats starting catcher on Wednesday night. He was good again. Man, the Nats are on some kind of run right now with their catching. I mentioned Cabert Ruiz having hit two home runs in each of his last two games for AAA Rochester. Tres Barrera has done a really good job recently. And Riley Adams, basically since he's been called up to the majors by the Nats, has killed it. Riley Adams is the guy who the Nats got back from the Toronto Blue Jays in the Brad Hand trade. Adams on Wednesday night, two for three with two singles in a walk. Top of the six. He had a leadoff five-pitch walk. Top of the seventh, he had a two-out single on an 0-2 pitch. And top of the tenth, he had a one-out single. Adams, over 42 Major League Plate appearances for the Nets, has an OPS of 1,063. He's been outstanding offensively. And then with Carter Keyboom, I mentioned the defensive boo-boo that he had to begin the bottom of the ninth. He also got thrown out at home in the top of the tenth inning. So Keyboom was that Nats runner on second base to begin the top of the tenth with the game tied at three, but he got thrown out at home on that Riley Adams one-out single in the top of the 10th. Now, watching the game on TV, it was hard to figure what exactly happened. It didn't appear, though, to be a bad send by the Nationals' third base coach, uh, Bob Sendley, Henley. Um, my guess is that Kibu maybe took an inefficient route to home plate, like he made too wide of a turn around third base coming home. But again, we don't know that for sure. But whatever the case, that was a bad out. Carter Keeboom getting thrown out and actually by a decent amount on that play. Now, the Marlins right fielder, Jesus Sanchez, made a nice play. But still, Carter Keeboom is not a slow guy. Uh, scoring from second base on a single like that, that's not that big of an ask. And yet, Keeboom uh, was unable to come through. Game three for the Nationals at the Marlins. Thursday night at 7-10, Patrick Corbin will be pitching for the Nats. Corbin is coming off a really good outing. Can he make it back-to-back good outings? Corbin in that 4-1 win at the Milwaukee Brewers this past Friday night. One run in six and a third innings. He had seven strikeouts versus no walks. He allowed just three hits. He threw 61 strikes versus 31 balls on 92 pitches. And he did all of this throwing a ton of fastballs, which is what Davey Martinez had wanted Corbin to do. Corbin needed that outing in the worst way. He entered the game with the worst ERA in the majors among qualified pitchers at 6-0-4. And he'll get a shot here to have success. I mean, again, the Marlins are a really bad hitting team. There's no reason Corbin can't be effective again on Thursday night and make it back-to-back quality outings. And how about this? You get the well-pitched game from Eric Fetty in game one of this series, the 5-1 win on Tuesday night. You get the well-pitched game from Josiah Gray in game two of this series, the 4-3 tenanting loss on Wednesday night. And now you have a shot to make it three for three. Three games in this series at the Marlins, three good outings truly from your starting pitchers. Can Corbin make it three for three? It has been forever 
since the Nationals had a three-game series in which the starting pitching in all three games was very good. We'll see if Corbin can seal the deal in that way come Thursday night. Well, baseball, like life, uh, makes no sense. The Orioles were, and still are, the worst team in the majors in terms of record and run differential. The Orioles had lost 19 consecutive games. The Orioles were facing the single biggest star in baseball this season in Shohei Otani. And yet, the Orioles got back in the win column. And the Orioles, again, in the win column. Yes, Joe Angel, that is exactly what happened. A feel-good night at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Wednesday night. Boy, have there not been many of those over the last four years. A 10-6 win over the Los Angeles Angels to, yes, end the Orioles' 19-game losing streak. It was a 19-game losing streak during which the O's were outscored 163-55. Let me say that again, 163-55. The O's had a run differential of minus 108 during the 19-game losing streak. The 19-game losing streak goes down as the second longest losing streak in Orioles history, trailing only the Orioles' 21-game losing streak, that began their 1988 season. That losing streak is the record for longest losing streak by an American League team in the modern era, which is since 1900. The 19-game losing streak is the longest losing streak in Major League Baseball since the Kansas City Royals had a 19-game losing streak in 2005. And the 19-game losing streak is tied for the seventh longest losing streak by any team in the modern era. So yeah, you got all that, but the losing streak is no more. And as I've said, the losing streak did not matter nearly as much as people like to say. The losing streak was not the ultimate indictment of the Orioles' rebuild, which is actually going quite well. The Orioles have the number one farm system in baseball per MLB pipeline. The Orioles have the number one position playing prospect in baseball per both MLB pipeline and Baseball America. The Orioles have the number one pitching prospect in baseball per both MLB pipeline and Baseball America. But the 19-game losing streak was embarrassing. There's no question about that. And it wasn't fun. Okay, I mean, if you're an Orioles fan, it's not like watching them get bludgeoned game in and game out was a good time. It wasn't. So it's good that this losing streak is now over. And it actually ends up ending in a pretty fun way. The Orioles scored 10 runs on Wednesday night. Austin Hayes has not just the hit of the game, but really one of the moments of the Orioles season. And I know that's not saying much, but Austin Hayes with a huge hit in this game, a pinch, one out, bases loaded, two run double to left field for a 9-6 Orioles lead in what was a five-run Orioles eighth inning. You also got a big performance from Cedric Mullins, who had been in a slump. Uh, Mullins entered the game five for his last 40, but he finished the game two for four with three RBI and an outfield assist. He had a leadoff homer off Shohei Otani to center field in the Orioles' two-run first, had a one-out single in the bottom of the third, had a two-out RBI ground out in the bottom of the seventh, and had a one-out RBI sack fly in that Orioles' five-run eighth inning. Even with the recent slump, Cedric Mullins still has the following slash line on the season. Batting average at 307, on-base percentage of 370, 
slugging percentage of 528. Even with the 5 for 40 slump going into that game on Wednesday night, Cedric Mullins still has an OPS on the season of 897. Just to give you a sense of how great of a year Cedric Mullins has had. Also, Anthony Santander, who has been very up and down this season, but when he's up, he is sky high up. Uh, he is back to being that. He had a monster game one in this series, and he had a big game two on Wednesday night. Santander went three for four on Wednesday night. He had a two-out solo homer off Shohei Otani to right field in that Orioles two-run first, as yes, the O's hit two solo homers off Shohei in that bottom of the first inning. Uh, Santander also had a leadoff single in an Orioles two-run fourth, and Santander had a double on a one-two pitch in that Orioles five-run eighth inning. Santander is an interesting guy because when we talk about the potential building blocks for the Orioles, like to me, okay, Cedric Mullins building block, Ryan Mountcastle building block. I think there's a really good chance that Austin Hayes is a building block, although he's got to be more consistent offensively. He's excellent defensively. I'd love to put Santander in that bucket. I mean, he's young enough to where he could be a building block This is only his age 26 season, but he's just all over the place. Again, when he's on, he's like really on, but when he's off, he's brutal. Uh, Santander on the season is slugging 464. Orioles pitching is atrocious. It was not good again on Wednesday night, but the hitting plays and the hitting delivered in this game. And yes, the 19 game losing streak is over. Game three for the O's against the Angels at Camden Yards Thursday afternoon at 105. Keegan Aiken will start for the O's. So yeah, this may be the beginning of another 19-game losing streak. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Friday show, episode 132. We will focus on the Washington football team's preseason finale, Baltimore Ravens at FedEx Field, Saturday evening At six, I'll tell you what I want to see in that game, including what is left to be determined in terms of Washington's season opening 53-man roster. We'll see if Patrick Corbin has a second consecutive good start for the Nationals. We'll see if the Orioles have a second consecutive win. Yes, an actual Orioles winning streak. Imagine that. Have a great rest of your Thursday, and I'll talk to you on Friday. You know, the culture is actually damn good. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.